So we have been talking about how Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. This is our 12th installment of that, and we're getting into a new section tonight that will probably take us uh, quite a while to, to kind of uh, talk about, and I'll introduce that in just a moment. But since it is kind of a heavy subject, I thought I would start out on a lighter note. Someone sent me this marquee from a church that I thought was kind of ironic, you know, <laughs> prophecies class canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. They must not be very good at uh, what they're studying. Uh, so we've talked about uh, some prophetic ways in which clearly the uh, things are aligning to set the stage for the end times. Um, we see that even just this week. Randy and I were talking about uh, all the major players uh, in the Battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are, are in the news once again. Uh, we've seen uh, other uh, you know, things happening that tell us the stage is being set prophetically. Then we looked at how the stage is being set geologically with you know, earthquakes and uh, the, the, earth, the, the birth pangs that the earth itself is groaning, as Paul says, longing for that day of redemption that is coming. And along with that, atmospherically, uh, I saw a couple of news reports this week of all the chemtrailing that they're doing in the airs on major networks, uh, interviewing pilots and talking about, you know, the reality of that uh, on a major network. And so they're not even hiding it anymore. And that is all setting the stage, particularly for what we're going to be talking about tonight with some of the cosmic uh, you know, battles that are taking place in the unseen realm. And then we talked about how the stage is being set economically, uh, how the, the Bible teaches that during the future reign of the, of the Antichrist, we're going to have a one-world economy and a system in place to where the government, the world government, will control what you can buy and sell. And if that's the case, then it makes sense. The closer we get to the rise of the Antichrist, we will see more examples of that and more of the stage setting for that. And that's exactly uh, what we're seeing. And then we spent a few weeks talking about signs of apostasy and how the stage is being set ecclesiastically. Of course, ecclesia, the Greek word often translated church. It just means called out ones or uh, the assembly. And uh, so certainly uh, the church uh, in many ways has fallen away, just as the Bible said it would, the closer we get to the return of the Lord and has become, in, in many cases, witting, and in some cases, unwitting, uh, pawns in the game of the Luciferian elite. But tonight, we shift into our sixth broad category, and that is how the stage is being set demonically. So the next few weeks are really going to be critical to the overall premise of this series that the time is now, and, and why all of this matters now more than ever, because the rise in otherworldly activity, spiritual, demonic activity from the dark side is meteoric. A lot of people don't understand it, they don't notice it, or they explain it away in terms of other explanations. They don't understand the spiritual side of this battle, but hopefully after tonight, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Word tonight. I'm going to try to really lay the foundation, not even positive we'll get through all of the scriptures that I want us to look at tonight, but then in the coming weeks, having laid that foundation, we're going to look at some manifestations of uh, this uh, evil spirit realm and, and how that, you know, in fact testifies to the, the fact that we're getting closer to the return of the Lord. Uh, but uh, it's everywhere. Everywhere you look, evil spiritual interlopers are intruding into the world of time, space, and matter at rates never before seen on planet Earth. And yes, I'm aware of what happened back in Noah's day in Genesis 6, but I, I'm telling you, it's reached new heights even today as we're going to see over the next few weeks. And what most people, even uh, Christians, who enthusiastically might 
embrace and study eschatology, the study of the end times, what, what they don't understand or what they miss is that at its core, Bible prophecy is about a cosmic spiritual battle in the unseen realm. What is happening here and all the stuff that we've been talking about so far in this series is simply symptomatic of a broader struggle between God and Satan, between demons, fallen angels, Satan's you know, army of spiritual enemies, and God's army and angels in the spiritual realm. Um, and this battle is just intensifying the closer we get to the rapture. So before we dive into several scriptures and kind of walk through an outline that I put together for that tonight, I want to illustrate a couple of examples of how this demonic battle is raging fiercer uh, than ever before. I think most of you by now, because I've talked about it before, are familiar with the largest gathering of Satanists in the history of the world that's coming up later this month in Boston. Uh, the Satanic Temple is the one uh, that is going to be uh, sponsoring it. It's called SatanCon 2023. They've been having these for several years now. But it's put on by the Satanic uh, Temple. And uh, the Satanic uh, Temple has been around since 2013. Uh, this is different. I think uh, we need to be clear on this. Different from uh, the uh, Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, that whole 1960s era. Uh, Totally different organization, but it has rapidly become the largest in the world. And so they're going to have uh, the largest gathering at the Boston Marriott there, uh, April 28th to 30th, of Satanists in one place. I'm going to give you some more details about that conference upcoming. But uh, Lucian Greaves and Malcolm Jerry, I hope I'm pronouncing their name right, just out of respect, but they founded the Satanic Temple in Salem, Massachusetts in 2013. Uh, actually, in 2016, excuse me. Um, Actually, they built the, let me get this straight. They founded it in 2013, as I said a moment ago. They built their headquarters in Salem and uh, established it there in 2016. And by the way, it's, it's a house in a, a former uh, funeral home and painted charcoal. Uh, and uh, we're going to come back to this idea of death and uh, the spiritual warfare in just a moment. Uh, but uh, these Satanists uh, celebrate five holidays. I'll just mention a couple of them. One of them, every February 15th, they celebrate the ancient Roman and Greek uh, ceremony of Lupercalia, which is where they sacrifice goats and dogs. Then on July 25th, they celebrate what they call the Unveiling Day, which is when they uh, uh, had their uh, statue. By the way, here is uh, uh, Lucian Greaves. He's one of the founders. But they, they, they dedicated this statue that they commissioned to be built. It's a Baphomet, as you can see there. Um, and they unveiled that uh, on, uh, July, on uh, July 25th, uh, 2015. If I remember right, they unveiled it in Detroit. I'm not sure what the reason for that was, but they've since moved it to the headquarters in Salem, Massachusetts, and there it is. Um, and then uh, I bet you can guess uh, one of the other uh, holidays that they celebrate, Halloween. Halloween, October 31st. And then, of course, on December 25th, they celebrate a special ceremony to the Roman sun god, uh, Invictus. Uh, so uh, it, it's uh, one of the reasons that we know that this is kind of getting closer and closer to the return of the Lord. It's not just because this is the largest gathering ever held in one place, but also because it's sold out in just a matter of days. There would be many more that would come to this if they could. And they've actually opened up the exhibit hall 
all kinds of uh, Satanists uh, share, uh, selling their wares, uh, their services, their icons, their you know uh, ritualistic uh, spells and magic are you know in the exhibit hall, and they've said even if you weren't able to get a ticket to the conference, you can at least come uh, come there. So sold out. And as uh, you know, you may have seen in that Fox News headline, I went to the website uh, for the conference, and not to sign up, by the way, just. So, so lest you have any worries about your pastor. I just wanted to get firsthand information. And indeed, it says right on there, SatanCon attendees must be 18 or over and have proof of COVID vaccination. Also, they must wear an N95 or KN95 surgical masks. Um, gaiters, bandanas, and cloth masks will not be allowed. So no surprise that they would buy, that, that they would buy into that whole narrative. So here's the schedule. Uh, you can just see for, by some of the speaker titles here, uh, Satanic Panic in Brazil, uh, Hellbillies, Visible Satanism in Rural America. Um, let's see, uh, this, and then the, the first night ends with the Satanic Ball. Uh, it's a semi-formal, and there will be a cash bar. Uh, on Saturday, you can look at some of the other uh, uh, presentations. They're going to start with uh, Lucian and Malcolm giving an update on uh, the the uh, satanic temple, uh, and then uh, they've got uh, one called deconstructing your religious upbringing, you know, because you got to break free from that brainwashing that you know there's a God and that He's all powerful and that only by faith alone in Christ alone can you be saved and you're a sinner who needs a Savior, right? Got to deprogram you there. Um, this uh, next one at 11:30, Debbie Dillard Wright. I looked her up, and uh, she's going to be talking about. Uh, atheistic strategies for self-determination and empowerment. Very famous atheist. She wrote a book called Self-Love. Uh, and uh, the blurb for this book on Amazon says, loving yourself isn't always easy. There's so much negativity around criticism, impossibly high standards, perfectionism. It's easy to lose sight of how wonderful you really are. But with a little self-love, you can get back on track. In this book, you'll find 120 reflections that help you cultivate and strengthen self-love. From recognizing the power of your body, uh, from forgiving yourself of past mistakes, empowering, uh, uh, simple yet empowering. This is a simple yet empowering guide that will provide tools on how to reconstruct your view of yourself. And each chapter comes with short exercises that you can do. Well, she's going to be speaking there on... Uh, that topic of self-determination and empowerment. And then we've got uh, Satanism and self-pleasure, sins of the flesh. We're going to talk about that tonight from the Bible on how those who follow Satan uh, indulge the flesh. Um, then uh, you can see uh, you know, several others listed there. And then the Sunday, it closes out with a sober mass to begin the day. A satanic mass, that is, um, and then uh, a guy, a gal is going to be speaking on five thousand years of demonology. Um, and I love this one. I mean, I don't love it, but I sarcastically love it. The devil is in all of you. The changing face of Satan in cinema, and they're going to be talking about how Satan is being promoted. Satanism is being promoted through mainstream media and Hollywood and television and movies. Uh, and then they finish out with an update on the, the, uh, uh, the, what was called back in the 80s and 90s the 
satanic panic. You still see that term bounced around out there. If you remember back in the 80s, there was all kinds of satanic ritual abuse in the news, um, including this uh, reports of this murder cult in 1985. Um, but they ended up claiming that it was all a farce. Um, the same thing was true of the, uh, what was that murder in Memphis? The uh, Memphis Three. Remember that? Um, they were, these uh, three men were accused of killing three boys in a satanic ritual. They ended up ultimately being uh, vindicated. But, uh, but all kinds of satanic ritual abuse. The late Russ Dizdar has documented that. He worked with police stations all across the country talking about it. Um, but this organization, the Satanic Temple, of course, is trying to downplay all of that and claiming that, that you know, there's not as much satanic ritual abuse as what people were led to believe. So uh, then I thought it was interesting as I browsed around their website, they have a, an abortion fundraiser to help people kill their babies. Um, the Satanic Temple does. Uh, they talk about uh, the dif distinction between them and the a Church of Satan. And then this was interesting. They are uh, a big sponsors of the After School Satan Club that is now all across the country on high schools and in high schools and junior highs, encouraging young people to, uh, uh, you know, abandon their professions of faith and instead, you know, think critically. This is their words: think critically, and uh, you know, you know, break free from this uh, this stuff. So. Uh, so that's just kind of to kind of introduce in a small way. We're going to have tons more to say, and I've got a few video clips I might play tonight if we get there, uh, just as anecdotal evidence that this spiritual battle is intensifying the closer we get to the return of the Lord. Um, but having introduced it, let me now dive into some scripture. So what we're talking about, as I've uh, detailed in great length in my two books, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 and Volume 2, is the Luciferian conspiracy. And to understand how the stage is being set demonically, we really need to understand this uh, conspiracy. So we'll start with Isaiah 14, uh, where in the historical context, it's referring to the king of Babylon, but it's widely understood as an allusion to Satan's fall. And Jesus even uses the same terminology in Luke 10, which we'll look at in a second. But it says, how you are fallen from heaven O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And this term Lucifer, this is where Satan's followers get the name Lucifer for their God. That's why they're called Luciferians. They believe Satan is the hero. Satan is the one in charge, that God is the antagonist, that Satan is the victor. And uh, it comes uh, from, that, that term comes from this passage. As I mentioned, Jesus, when he was sending out the 70, had quite a powerful little speech when they came back. Uh, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, you know, we've already defeated him once, we can defeat him again. In fact, Jesus would defeat him uh, at the end of his ministry when he shed his blood, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Uh, but he goes on. Uh, to say, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, in the context, he's talking specifically to his apostles there, the 70. Uh, but certainly, it's an, it's an indication that obviously the power of Jesus is greater than the power of, of Satan. And we, from other passages, know that we have that same authority uh, today. But notice Jesus says, 
almost in a sense of downplaying this because people can can become you know power hungry he says nevertheless don't rejoice in this that these spirits are subject to you and they are never forget that i'm going to try to remind you often as we go through this series that this is not something to be afraid of because these spirits are subject to us in the name of jesus but he says don't rejoice in that but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven you know the same god who was able to pay your sin penalty on your behalf shed christ's blood on your behalf solve your dilemma so you don't have to go to hell rescue you from hell is the same god that's going to deliver you ultimately to the kingdom someday and so even though it's getting worse before it gets better as the bible says it will we don't have to fear and we need to remember who it is we serve and then he says this he prays and in, in the midst of his prayer to the father he says all things have been delivered to me by my father so remember, Jesus, we've talked about this, we talked about it on Easter Sunday, is sitting at the right hand of God, waiting until he can come back and take, uh, be, you know, have the kingdom be inaugurated, like take office, if you will. All things have already been given to him, but he's not ruling over them. All things are not under him just yet, as the writer of Hebrews says. But they've already been given to him. And he goes, goes on to say, no one knows who the, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. So, in other words, as Jesus said in John, I and my Father are one. And then he turns to the disciples and he says privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. And that caught my attention as I was preparing for tonight because in the context he's talking about how they had seen some amazing spiritual battles. People healed, demons cast out, amazing things in the spiritual realm. And he says, you're blessed because you see that. Because I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it. And to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And I would argue the same thing is true today. For awake Christians who understand the Bible, understand the conspiracy, understand how things are heating up and what Satan is trying to do to take over this world. Those who see it, that's a special blessing. Because not everybody does. I was talking to someone just recently who uh, insisted that Things will never be as bad as they were in Genesis 6. And God will never destroy this earth again. And, you know, of course, all you have to do is read the Bible to see that in 2 Peter 3, he is going to destroy the world again, uh, this time by fire. And, in fact, things are getting worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3, 13. And uh, even though, you know, and Wendy and I have talked about this through the years since, since waking up and going down this rabbit hole, even though in some ways, humanly speaking, we, we might wish, boy, I wish I was still blind. I wish I hadn't awakened to this. It was much easier in a way when we didn't know what we know we need to flip that around and remind ourselves no there's a blessing in knowing the truth and seeing this because if the lord tarries is coming we may be here when a lot of this stuff uh, goes down even worse than it is now the one world government could be inaugurated before the antichrist comes on the scene the collapse of america could happen uh, you know who knows and seeing through the lens of scripture is always better than sticking your head in the sand uh, so then we go back to Isaiah 14, and he's describing really the root of this conspiracy, which is the desire to be God. This is how it all started. Satan wanted to be God. And he said, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. 
And then God tells him, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, the grave is what that means in Hebrew, to the lowest depths of the pit. You know, when Satan said, I will ascend into heaven, he was referring to the dwelling place of God. Scripture, and I outlined this, by the way, in, in volume 2, chapter 3 of Spirit of the Antichrist. I, I discussed this. But Scripture talks about three levels of heaven. The first level is the atmosphere that envelops the earth. Uh, we commonly call this the realm of, of, of the air above or the sky above. It's where the birds soar and the planes fly. The second sphere of heaven is interstellar space where the stars are. But the third and highest level of heaven refers to the dwelling place of God. It's the abode of God from which he rules in majesty and sovereignty over all of his creation. It is outside of time, space, and matter. For Satan to go into heaven, he's got to go through a portal, to use human terminology. He's got to go outside of time, space, and matter into the realm of eternity to be able to, to, to interact with God like we read about in Job. And like he's still doing today, by the way. He's the accuser, accusing us before God. But Satan, we read, wanted to ascend to that third level above the stars to the dwelling place of God because he wanted to be like the Most High God. He coveted God's throne. And when he couldn't have it, he set his sights on earth. He confronted Adam and Eve in the garden, promising them that they too could be like God if only they would follow and obey him. The serpent, which we know is the devil, said to Eve, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. That's what Satan wants to do. And Satan's earthly co-conspirators share his desire uh, to be God. We see this in Psalm 2. David writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? There it is. I've underlined it. That's the conspiracy. That's the human element of the conspiracy. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers. They take counsel together. They're conspiring together against Yahweh and against his son, the anointed one, Jesus Christ. And what are they saying in these secret meetings? They're saying, let us break their, the reference to the triune God, the Trinity, that's why it's capitalized, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is the human element of that conspiracy that I've talked so much about and that really the bulk of my two-volume set is all about. All the examples of how globalists, Luciferians, the elite, how, whatever you want to call them, the adepts in, that are part of these secret societies are all working together to try to usher in a one-world satanic system. But Satan and his earthly accomplices, they have control issues. They want control. That's why they're trying to break uh, God's bonds and God's cords. Uh, but look at how God responds. David goes on, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and then he shall speak to them in his wrath. This is referring in the future to the return of Christ when he comes back uh, with a sword proceeding out of his mouth to tread the winepress of the, of the fury and wrath of Almighty God. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress, and distress them in deep displeasure, because yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And even though he hasn't taken that throne yet, it's as good as done. God knows that. That's why God can look down, like I talked about on Easter Sunday uh, here at Plum Creek, and laugh. He's not bothered by this at all. And, and as I mentioned, it's good for us to catch his eye sometimes and be reminded if he's not worried, we shouldn't be either. We should be prepared, but never scared. And Psalm 110, which is the passage we looked at on Easter Sunday, the Lord said to my Lord, this is Yahweh saying to Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. 
rule in the midst of your enemies. One day Jesus will rule in the midst of these evil, Luciferian enemies. And uh, if we go back to Genesis 3.15, this is where the earthly phase of the battle began. The heavenly phase began when Satan rebelled in heaven, orchestrated a coup. Uh, but the earthly one began in, in the garden. And God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed capitalized there is a reference to Christ. Ultimately, uh, it would be a human being born in the flesh, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, fully God, but took on human flesh. That's that hypostatic union that we read about in Philippians 2, the kenosis, where he emptied himself, became like man, uh, became obedient to death on the cross to pay our penalty for sin. And he's the ultimate target. And Satan has been doing everything he can in the earthly realm to destroy Christ, to kill Christ, to keep Christ from, from that seed from being able to ever happen. Um, and, uh, and along the way, you know, uh, he's uh, bruising the heel. That's just a metaphor for he's doing damage, and he is. A lot of bad things have happened through the millennia, but uh, someday his head will be uh, crushed. So when we talk about Satan... Uh, and this earthly realm, uh, the Bible tells us the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He is called, as Jesus says, the ruler of the world. And this is Jesus speaking here after he's come into Jerusalem for that final week, Passion Week, we call it, that led up to the cross, but prior to the Upper Room Discourse on Thursday night. So sometime in that range, Jesus is uh, talking here, and he says, uh, this voice did not come because of me. It was when God spoke. And he said, but for your sake, now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, we've gone 2,000 more years and, and it hasn't culminated yet. But the die was cast at Calvary a few days after Jesus made this statement. And that's why John tells us uh, in the same passage that tells us the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work among us, verse 3, which is the premise for my books, he tells us that, to remember that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, because Jesus has already won the victory. So this present age is called the present evil age, and we need to understand that Satan has been fast at work trying to uh, you know, take over this world, usher in a one-world political, religious, and economic uh, system. And you know, what we've been focusing on up to now in this series on The Time Is Now and, and what I focus predominantly on in the books is the Luciferian conspiracy from an earthly perspective. How are Satan's earthly co-conspirators helping set the stage for the final battle during the tribulation leading up to Armageddon? But starting tonight, I want to spend some time focusing on the unseen aspect of this conspiracy in the heavenlies, the spiritual aspect in the spiritual realm. And what we're going to find is that this battle that has been raging in the heavenlies is moving closer and closer to the earth the closer we get to the rapture. And it is all around us. You know, if you look at the biblical record of human history, you find that every time we enter into a new dispensation, a new era, as Paul describes in Ephesians 3, but every time that happens, there's always an upsurge in spiritual, demonic, you know, evil spirit type activity. 
And certainly that's the case as we read through the book of Revelation in that final seven years leading up to the coming of the kingdom when Christ comes back to inaugurate the kingdom. And we're seeing that upsurge uh, today. This battle is moving from the heavenlies to the earthly realm. So the conspiracy, just to sketch it out for you as I did in the book, is between Satan, evil spirits, and human accomplices. This is the Luciferian conspiracy. And there's much that we've said already and still needs to be said about the human side of this, the, the puppets. That's why I used a marionette and a puppeteer in that you know, last image, because you know, we need to understand there's, there's greater powers at play here. And they've been given some freedom for now, um, but uh, ultimately their efforts will come to nothing, and that's why God laughs at them. So we've focused on the human side of that, but what we're going to start focusing on tonight as we talk about the stage being set demonically is the, the fallen angels, the demons, the Nephilim. We're going to get into the Nephilim possibly even uh, tonight. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at how the stage is being set for the return of Christ in terms of the increase in demonic activity and other evil spiritual activity that is taking place and that we get glimpses of all the time. This is predominantly chapters 9 and 10, at least on the earthly manifestations of it, which we'll get to starting next week. And so we're going to talk about UFOs. We're going to talk about a lot of the other things that I talk about in the, in the spirit of phenomena in those uh, two chapters, demonic entities and other things. Um, no question that you know we're seeing an upsurge in all this, but what's the basis for it? Let's go back and, and set, you know, the biblical foundation for why this should not surprise us. You know, UFOs, uh, for 70 years, the government denied there was such a thing, denied they were studying, and then even though ufologists have all kinds of, you know, rock-solid empirical evidence that they, that they were, we have whole buildings full of data that the, that the government was tracking with uh, uh, Project uh, Blue book and grunge and several others as I document, all of a sudden in 2017, out of nowhere, they come out and say, yeah, of course UFOs exist. We've been tracking them forever. What are you talking about? Even though they denied it for decades. Um, those of us that understand this phenomena from a biblical perspective uh, have, not, have never questioned it. There's no question that UFOs exist. The question is, what are they? And uh, if you understand the Bible, you understand these are demonic manifestations. And I don't want to get too far afield of where we're headed tonight, but uh, since I've introduced the subject, and some of you may not have read the books, you know, the, the modern UFO era in America started in 1947 in the context of Israel becoming a nation. And the case that I make in the book is that Satan saw what was going on with World War II, uh, with the nuclear bomb in Japan and some of those things, the atomic bomb, and, and he said, you know, Something is, is about to happen prophetically if Israel is a nation again, because Israel has not been, had not been a nation since the end of the first century. And so here all of a sudden they reemerge, May 15th, 1948. That gets Satan's attention. Satan's not omniscient. All he's doing is interpreting things the way we are. But he knows the Bible. He knows it better than most Christians. And he knows that Israel plays a central role in God's final plan because God's plan involved an unconditional covenant to Israel, including land, seed, and blessing. And there's going to be a rebuilt temple, first for the Antichrist to desecrate during the tribulation, ultimately for Christ to take the throne and rule with a rod of iron for a thousand years. But if, if that's going to happen, Israel has to be a nation again. So he sees Israel becoming a nation again. What's he do? He sends out his reconnaissance demons to try to make sense of it and report back. Satan can't be everywhere at one time. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent. And so 
it's just been intensifying and intensifying and intensifying uh, since then. And we'll come back to that in the coming weeks. Uh, but let's, uh, let's lay the biblical foundation here. Uh, we know, uh, and we looked at this in the context of apostasy, that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, that is, evil spirits. Demons are evil spirits, but not all evil spirits are demons. There's another class of evil spirits, which we're going to discuss hopefully uh, tonight if we get there. Um, and doctrines of demons. So he mentions both, the broad and the narrow aspect of this uh, battle in the unseen realm. Uh, in the context of in talking about the Antichrist, Paul says the coming of the lawless one, that's another name for the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan. Remember, he's the one chief in charge. He's pulling the strings. He's the head of this conspiracy. Uh, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. What are those signs? They're supernatural things. You know, they're going to be some. You read book book of Revelation. You see some, you know, incredible supernatural type signs. And the book of Revelation tells us the Antichrist will perform great signs, things like making fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. Uh, this should not surprise us. Satan is pretty powerful. And we know all the way back from uh, the, the interaction between Moses and the Pharaohs that uh, Satan's uh, human accomplices can replicate a lot of what God does. We know that from Elijah and the prophets of Baal and some of the things that they, they did. Of course, they couldn't bring the fire ultimately, so they failed the test. But, um, so they're going to do great signs. Uh, uh, the Antichrist was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak. So he's going to be able to make inanimate objects speak great signs so let's take a look at some of the types of evil evil spirits you know we talk about satan's earthly army right klaus schwab you've all know harari david rockefeller all these you know satan worshiping globalists but what about his spiritual army well the key passage here is ephesians 6 12 that mentions four kinds of evil spirits for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities. Principalities is the highest rank of evil spirit. Uh, uh, we know that, and I'm going to talk about this in a second, go back to the Old Testament, but Satan was a cherub. Cherubs are one of the higher classifications of angels, not the highest, but one of the highest. But Satan, when he got kicked out of heaven, became uh, a leader. And then you've got the rulers of darkness. Uh, there are all kinds of rulers that that have certain levels of, of power and authority. Special rulership can be territorial. It can also be project-based. And then you've got spiritual, you've got powers. I forgot to highlight powers there. I apologize. But powers are, are those that also have special powers that they have been uh, using in this conspiracy. And then you've got spiritual hosts of wickedness, which are particularly evil you know, agents of Satan. They're the ones that I think are involved in the spirit of perversion and those uh, types of things. But we also see a similar uh, classification structure of good angels. You know, we know Daniel, I mean, I'm sorry, Michael in Daniel 10 is the uh, chief prince. There are princes. He's the chief prince, the, the you know, highest level there. We see, uh, you know, other different designations, and, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But listen to what Jesus said uh, here, in response to being accused of being Satan, Beelzebub there is just, it's a metaphor for Satan. It was a false god in the Philistine world, but, you know, they were using that 
basically calling him Satan, as Jesus' answer indicates. But they come to him, and they say, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. And then Jesus said, Well, how can Satan cast out Satan? You know, that's ridiculous. The word ruler there is the word archon. Uh, it's the same word that's used in Ephesians 2 when Jesus is called the, I mean, when Satan's called the prince of the power of the air. Um, and he, 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 if you go to uh, Matthew 12, 26, notice Jesus, again, in the same context, this is just Matthew's account of it. Uh, again, if Satan casts out Satan, then he's divided against himself. But notice how then will his kingdom stand? We're talking about Satan's kingdom. Do you realize Satan has a kingdom? God has a kingdom and Satan has a kingdom. And, uh, you know, that's why we read Jesus saying, if you're not for me, you're against me, right? That's why the Bible basically defines all of humanity either as a son of God or a son of wrath, a child of God or a child of the devil. Now, believers can act like child of, children of the devil when we sin, but there's a, in a positional sense, you're either one or the other. The moment you're born again, born into the family of God by grace through faith, then you become a child of God. John 1, 12, as many as received him, the game he gave the power to become the children of God. But apart from that, you're a child of the devil. You're in the devil's army, not God's army. And Satan has a kingdom. In John 12, Jesus answered and said, uh, again, we looked at this a moment ago, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake, now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world. So Satan is the ruler of his kingdom, and this kingdom is his, this world is his kingdom. Uh, here's where we know that Satan was a cherub, this is clearly talking about Satan. Uh, the king of Tyre in the context is what's used as a metonym for Satan. But we know from verse 13, I didn't put it on the screen, but it talks about how he was in Eden, in the garden of God. This is definitely a reference to Satan. And it says, you were the anointed cherub. Not just a cherub, but the anointed one. Uh, the top dog, if you will. Um, and he says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Satan is the head of this evil spirit realm. He has evil spirits at his disposal. One third of the angels fell. And then we'll talk about the Nephilim a little bit later. But, uh, but he is the head. And uh, by the way, we, we know from the apocryphal book of Jubilees, not inspired scripture, not the infallible word of God, but an interesting historical reference that, at least according to Jubilees, uh, Satan requested uh, to become the ruler of the demons. It was his choice. So uh, he's the ruler of the demons. He's the top dog. We know in the end times during the tribulation, this spiritual battle is going to involve the two top dogs, if you will. Uh, the leading angel on the good angel side is Michael, the archangel, and he's going to fight the dragon, Satan, who's the top dog on the evil side, and that this is right before the return of Christ. So uh, going back to Ephesians 2.2, 2, which I referenced in passing, he is the prince of the power of the air, Satan is, the spirit who now walk, works in the sons of disobedience. And as I said, before you got saved, whether you realize it or not, you were walking according to this world. You were a pawn in that game. You were a member of that kingdom. So there really is two sides, the dark side and the light side. In fact, the book of John, 1 John talks a lot about that metaphor between light and, and darkness. 
Uh, during the tribulation period, we're going to see these uh, evil spirits take on an increased role, which is what's happening today in the lead up to that. For example, in uh, you know Revelation 9, with the trumpet judgments, I saw a star fallen from heaven. That's a reference to Satan. And he's evidently given a key to the bottomless pit in order to release some of these imprisoned evil spirits that have been imprisoned there temporarily. Uh, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. The word bottomless pit, there's one word in Greek. It's the word abusos. It's where we get the English cognate abyss. Uh, often you'll see upsilons, uh, or, or what we would say is a U in Greek, transliterated as a Y, so it becomes A-B-Y-S-S instead of A-B-U-S-S. It's in Greek, it's a busos. It's used nine times uh, in uh, the New Testament. And he goes on to say, he opened this abyss, this bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So this event was represented visually as great smoke darkening the sky and the sun. These were demons that were coming out of this pit. Now just get the visual there. So many of them that the sky was darkened with them. The sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Satan really is, uh, you know, the spirit of darkness, the leader of darkness. He hates the light because the light dispels the darkness. That's why we read in Luke's account of the, uh, I think it's uh, either, either Zechariah or Simeon, one of the songs that are sung at the birth of Christ, you know, that, that light came into darkness and shone uh, on, the, on Israel. Uh, then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of earth uh, have power. So it's an, a figure of speech, locusts there. It's not literal locusts. It's, uh, you know, heavenly locusts that, like the earthly locusts, have power. He goes on, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth. So these demons, we know they're demons because they have intellect. They have, they, they're, you know, you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't command, you know, a bunch of insects. Uh, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those who do not, do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, in the book of Revelation, we had a group of God's people that were sealed back in Revelation 7 with 144,000 Jewish witnesses. They were sealed and protected. But, you know, we see this reference to seal elsewhere theologically, and I believe it's referring here to all believers, not just those 144,000. I think at this point in the tribulation, we're in the second half of the tribulation. It's the fifth trumpet judgment. And I believe uh, it's referring to the fact that these will not be able to harm believers. Now, believers will be harmed. They're going to be beheaded and martyred. And there's other things happening where they're harmed. But this particular uh, army of demons will not be able to touch believers. Because we see, for example, in Ephesians 1, that all believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And uh, in Paul's last letter, he said to Timothy, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Back to Revelation 9, they were not given authority to kill them, but notice to torment them for five months. In fact, their, their uh, victims will be begging for death and not be able to find it. They will desire to die and death uh, will flee from them. They would rather die. We see this same idea of the abyss in Luke chapter 8 uh, when 
Uh, Jesus is de dealing with a demon-possessed man. What is your name? Legion, he says, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. See, these evil spirits know, you know, who's, who, they know they're the underdog. They know that Christ has the power to banish them. And they didn't want to end up in that abyss where these other demons are right now who at the midpoint of the tribulation are going to be let out to help Satan in his futile attempts to win uh, the battle. Uh, in Revelation 11, we see the ministry of the two witnesses that uh, you know comes to an end. And uh, God allowed the beast that comes up from the abyss to overcome them. And uh, the Antichrist is who it's talking about there. Uh, this beast is mentioned ten times, by the way, in Revelation. That's the name for the Antichrist. And after the witnesses were killed, their bodies were left unburied in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, for three and a half days, the whole world gloated over their dead bodies. Uh, this implies some kind of worldwide display. You know, how are they going to do that? Well, you know, you read this in the Middle Ages or you read this even in the 17, 1800s. You're wondering, how in the world can that happen? Now it's easy to see, you know, with satellites and, you know, you can watch what's happening. I did a podcast yesterday with someone in Alaska. Instant, no problem, as if he was right in the room with me. Um, and so uh, no, no problem for us to understand how everyone in the world would see these dead bodies of the two witnesses. And, you know, the, the Antichrist and Satan consider this a great victory. In fact, uh, we find out they were celebrating by, you know, people sending gifts to each other later on in this chapter. After three and a half days, though, suddenly the two witnesses are resurrected and stood on their feet. And they respond to an invitation, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while the enemies looked with great fear. And at that same moment, if you read on toward the end of chapter 11, a great earthquake Happen and a tenth of the city of Jerusalem collapsed, killing 7,000 people. This is all the intensifying of this battle, the closer we get to the climactic battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. Um, so we, we can turn to Revelation chapter 20, and here we see another angel. This time it's not Satan, uh, a good angel who has the key to the bottomless pit. Now, I don't know whether God just allowed Satan and unlocked the door for him to get some demons out of the abyss for, to help with his final battle, or whether he gave him the key and then he went back and changed the locks so that the ones that were still in there couldn't get out. But in any event, uh, this angel comes down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragons, that's Satan, that serpent of old, the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into this bottomless pit. I should have highlighted that too. And shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, the Bible tells us, he will be released for a little while. So we talked about in my What Lies Ahead series, and I talk about it in my What Lies Ahead book, the purpose for the thousand year millennium is during that time satan is in prison deception is not rampant like it is today this the bible calls this the great last days of deception remember we looked at second timothy three thirteen a lot in here how deception is getting worse and worse um, but during the thousand years there won't be deception but the heart of man is so desperately wicked that even in the most idyllic of conditions 
when justice is served, there's no accidental death, no innocent being you know, found guilty, no guilty being acquitted. Jesus is on the throne ruling with a rod of iron. Even in such a case, those people who are born during the millennium, dead in their trespasses and sins, like all human beings, will have to be saved by grace through faith. And many, even in that state, will reject the gospel, reject the free gift of salvation. Uh, so you can't blame it on Satan. You can't say the devil made me do it, right? Um, because in that case, he's not going to be nearly as influential as he is in the present age. And then another type of evil spirit is the Nephilim. The Nephilim. Uh, these are hybrids. So let's look at the key passage, and I'm, I'm running out of time, so I can already tell we're not going to get to what I was hoping to get to tonight, but that's okay. Genesis 6, this incursion, this intrusion of these fallen angels. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth that the daughters of, and daughters of men were born to them, that the sons of God, this is a reference to uh, fallen angels in this case. We see the same thing in Job. Uh, saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, you know, you read commentaries on this and you'll find people all over the map trying to explain this away because they just can't let the Bible speak for itself and say what it says in plain English. But it should not surprise us that angels, whether fallen or unfallen, can take on human form. The Bible tells us to be sure you entertain strangers because you might be entertaining an angel and not know it. And when they take on human form, you know, if you were to cut off their arm, it's going to bleed. If you were to pull their hair, it's going to hurt. They're, they have a human, physical, biological body. And the same thing goes with the inside parts. They're taking on human form. That's the reason in Lot's day that when those angels visited Lot, that those homosexuals nearly tore the door down trying to get at them so they could have sex with them homosexual sex because they were males with male body parts and they wanted to have sex with them. So um, lots of examples we could look at in scripture. This should not, you know, shake our um, theology. We know that angels cannot procreate with angels, but angels in bodily form can procreate with humans. And that's exactly what happened. And it was such an evil incursion and an evil intrusion that it led God to destroy the whole world with the flood. So they took wives of whom they chose. Um, and then we see the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he in, in, is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And notice what I've underlined there. And also afterward, where did these giants come from? The word giant there is the word Nephilim. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore them children. There it is. There it is. This isn't hard to figure out uh you know you if you don't if you're not if that's distasteful as it is to many believers to think of demons or fallen angels you know cohabiting with women then you're going to do hermeneutical gymnastics and try to make them out to be something else but the fact is these sons of god fallen angels uh, you know had sexual intercourse with these women and they had children that were called nephilim these nephilim are hybrids and consequently they have bizarre physical features they're giants they're huge they're enormous in fact the bible calls them mighty men of old or men of renown nephilim like angels by the way always manifest as males you never see any reference to female angels you never see any reference to female nephilim you know go through the new testament all the demonic activity you see there was always men right so uh, that, that were manifesting as, as demons and so, it's, notice it says, and also afterward. In other words, 
These Nephilim, these giants, were also on the earth afterward. And you think, well, how in the world did that happen? Well, remember, we're not talking about human beings here. God destroyed every human being, and he destroyed every living creature on earth in bodily form. But if you're a hybrid and you can shapeshift, as I've talked about in my books, between the spirit realm and the physical realm, then you just take on spirit form, rise above the floodwaters, and you're still there afterward. Now, many theologians who you know, also rightly understand this passage uh, in terms of being Nephilim, they, would, they suggest, and I'm not going to die on this hill because we really don't know the answer. All it says is that they were, there were some of them there after the flood also. They would suggest that, no, the, the original offspring of this incursion, they did die in the flood. But since it says that these Nephilim existed after the flood, we must have had repeated intrusions and, pre, and repeated fallen angels coming back down and doing the same thing. The Bible is silent on that. Is it possible? I suppose it's possible. Um, my friend, uh, Dr. Andy Woods, a good friend of mine, uh, I've been on you know many conferences with him. We've shared the platform together. We've been on Q&As together served together, uh, and on a podcast I was on with him one time, he speculated that there's no way fallen angels would do that again because they saw what happened to the first ones, which the first ones were permanently imprisoned in Tartarus. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But either way, whether it's they, these Nephilim shapeshifted and rose above the floodwaters, and that's how they survived, or they were new Nephilim born after the flood, uh, who, who's to say? But Nephilim is a Greek word. It's only used three times in the Hebrew but it refers to fallen or mighty ones, and mighty they are. You see it in the book of Numbers when the children of Israel sent out the spies, and Caleb said to the people, let us go up at once and take possession, talking about the land of Canaan, for we are all able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with them with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There it is, the Nephilim. We saw giants. That's the actual use of the word here. Uh, and we were like grasshoppers in their own sight. And so we were in their sight. So... Uh, you know, what, what happens? Well, this is so terrifying to them. You know, this is way more terrifying uh, you know, of a response than you would see if these were just, you know, an enemy nation that was pretty imposing. I mean, there was something about what they saw. And, and when they reported back, the congregation as a whole cried out and wept all night long. Why? Because they knew about Genesis 6, and they knew uh, what had been happening in the centuries since then. Now, two New Testament passages refer back to this uh, unholy incursion. Jude refers to those angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, and how he has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And notice the comparison here. Again, it's a simile, a comparison using like or as. These angels who did not leave their proper domain were like or as Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities around them in similar manner to these. What was their sin? They gave themselves over to sexual immorality and, gave, and, and have gone after strange flesh. So again, even if you don't take the Old Testament at its plain face value meaning in the text, here you've got Jude referring back to the sins of those angels who left their proper domain as being a sexual sin because they went after strange flesh. In the case of the men of 
Sodom and Gomorrah, it was human men going after human men. Strange flesh in that way. But in the case of the angels who left their proper domain, it was fallen angels going after human women. That's not supposed to happen. And uh, so they're going to face the vengeance of eternal fire. Then Peter, you know, there are a lot of parallels between Peter and Second Peter and Jude. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell... That's not the normal word for hell there. That's the word Tartarus, and Tartarus is a special prison in hell reserved for the most evil of fallen angels uh, from Genesis 6. The apocryphal book of Enoch, by the way, tells us that there's another archangel, Uriel, that is standing watch over Tartarus until their, their final judgment. We don't know if that's true. The Bible doesn't speak about that, but it's kind of interesting that early on when these apocryphal books were written, people understood the paradigm. They understood the concept of what God's Word was talking about here. Uh, to be reserved for judgment uh, and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, one out of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the, in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So uh, the Nephilim are just another class of evil spirit uh, that Satan has at his disposal. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to part company with other theologians who might not, you know, understand the Nephilim the way I do, because at the end of the day, there's a spiritual army, and the, the classification of the members of that sp spiritual evil army really is, it's not something that we should split over or part company over. People have different terminology, different understanding of it. In my book, I kind of outline it this, this way, although I don't go into a lot of detail about the Nephilim because I wanted people to read the book. <laughs> and critics would say, oh, you're nuts. And, you know, people who never heard of it would say, oh, you're nuts. And they wouldn't, they'd miss the point. So in the book, I try to keep it macro level to understand there is a satanic conspiracy, as we've already outlined tonight in Scripture. It involves human elements and it involves spiritual elements. Um, but I just want you to know that in my mind, based on these passages we've looked at tonight, there's a distinction between you know, true demons or fallen angels and the Nephilim. Now, some people use the term demon to refer to Nephilim and think fallen angels are different. Again, there's a case to be made for that, but it's kind of beside the point. The point is you've got two classes of evil spirits. One that's spirit only, and those can indwell unbelievers. They can influence believers. They can shapeshift and take on different forms, human form and animal form, but they're spirit. The hybrids are not human, but they're not fully spirit either. They're hybrids. That's, that's what that means. And so they're not redeemable. They don't have a soul. They're not human like you and I. They're not made in the image of God. But they have certain capabilities that might come in useful to Satan uh, in this end times battle. Now, the distinction between the fully evil spirits and the hybrids, you know, it's, I don't know that we would be able to tell if we look at demonic activity, which we're going to in this uh, series, which is which? Uh, and it's not for us to say. All, all we have to do is identify them as part of Satan's army, evil spirits, and not, you know, angelic spirits. Uh, you know, some people have tried to suggest, based on certain physical features, that you can tell a difference. I'm not sure I'm prepared to go there, um, because the Bible really doesn't tell us that. Um, it's also interesting that we have found uh, L.A. Marzulli's done, you know, yeoman's work on this, and Mondo Gonzalez, who used to work with him, and many others, Steve Quayle and others have talked about this, 
giant skeletons in various parts of the world, not just over there in the Middle East, in South America and other places, uh, throughout, you know, generation after generation. I mean, 10, 12, 14 feet skeletons. So, uh, and there have been documentaries about that and, and, and shown it. So, uh, I think what, what I want to do next, we'll pause here and, and take some questions, and I'm sure you have some. But in our next meeting, we're going to talk about what are some indications that you might be dealing with some kind of an evil spirit, either a demon manifesting as a human or an animal or something, or perhaps a demon influencing an actual human or animal, or maybe a, a hybrid. What are some indications? What are some of the manifestations of that? And the Bible actually gives us quite a lot of data you know, and examples where we know this is an evil spirit. And then we can sort of collate some of the behaviors and come up with a list of things that they've done it before. Maybe that's something you could look for. Again, doesn't mean that's always the case. If you see such and such a behavior, you're always dealing with an evil spirit. But it's certainly good to kind of categorize all of the activities that we see from known demonic activity and, and be on the lookout for it. So I've got a bunch of scripture and, I don't know, 12 or 15 different types of things backed up with scripture and some uh, video clips to show you what might be, again, we don't know, you know, we, we can't tell, especially these days with AI, it's becoming harder and harder to differentiate reality from, you know, fake reality. Um, and there's hoaxes and there's natural explanations for what might appear to be demonic activity. But just, I, I want to illustrate, and I'll do this next week, some of these manifestations of evil spirits with some real life footage of things that we've seen uh, happening. So uh, what did we talk about tonight? We talked about uh, the different classifications of evil spirits, how evil spirits are going to play a role in the uh, end times, and particularly in the tribulation. And we talked about how they play a role in Satan's army in this Luciferian uh, conspiracy. So I'll open it up w for uh, questions uh, now, if you have any, or comments or thoughts. Yes? Um, just a comment. We took Wesley to the Children's Museum in Denver on Saturday. All right. And, and there was a little boy there that couldn't have been more than eight or ten. And uh, he had a shirt on that said Hellfire Club and had a big picture of the devil around the front. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the comment was at the museum in Denver, uh, uh, they saw a little boy that had a t-shirt on that said Hellfire Club with a big picture of uh, the devil. Everybody, anybody know the origin of the Hellfire Club? I talk about this in the books. Benjamin Franklin was a member. It was a secret society in London uh, where they performed satanic rituals in the basement. And a few years ago, when they were doing some modifications to ben Benjamin's home, Benjamin Franklin's home, they you know, had to dig up the foundation and dig down several feet and found all kinds of skeletons of, ch of children. Now, we don't know. You know. The official narrative was, oh, well, it must have been a morgue or something. You know, but uh, based on documented evidence of his being a member of the Hellfire Club, uh, which we know that still exists, you can see take tours of it today. It was an underground tunnel, all kinds of satanic stuff in there. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, somebody else? Yes, Gary. You talk about the Luciferian conspiracy having Lucifer, the demons, and the human agents, and I'm guessing that all. Not all human agents would be demon possessed, but possibly the higher ranks. Just curious. So he, the comment is about the Luciferian conspiracy having demons 
other types of evil spirits and human accomplices. And the comment was, I'm guessing the human accomplices are not all demon-possessed. No, not at all. In fact, many of them might not even have a clue that they're a part of a Luciferian conspiracy. I don't have that chart in this presentation, but in the first volume, I, I actually show a chart of the human side of it. And I remember I have the three tiers, the top tier, the second tier, and the bottom tier. And the, all I mean by human accomplices here are, are human beings that are aiding and abetting Satan, whether wittingly or not, in his effort to take over the world. Uh, some of them at the top tier are well aware this is satanic in nature. They pray to him. They communicate with him. Uh, they're the ones sacrificing children and drinking blood, like we've seen through the centuries, just like the Bible says there is. Uh, but uh, some of them are not necessarily demon-possessed. They're just, you know, doing satanic stuff. So there's the demon, the evil spirits and demons and, and the like certainly influence Satan's human accomplices, and they can indwell, you know, certain ones, no doubt. They might take on human form, but I'm not, I don't mean to imply by this uh, diagram that, that the human side are all either demons that have taken on human form, or, or are they real humans that have been indwelt, but neither one. They could be some of that, but it's also just, you know, different uh, personalities and, 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 and so forth figureheads, world leaders, people like that. Does that make sense? Okay, awesome. Anybody else? Yes? Um, as it relates to waking up, you, you brought this up, and I feel like I'm being woken up forcefully in some of your... Um, <laughs> he said, I feel like I'm being woken up forcefully. I'm saying that for the people on the video. Yeah. What I'm wondering about is I've been on a, on a hunt for a new church home for two years probably now. And one of the things that's shown me is I found a lot of great people, but the church as a whole seems to be in some kind of a stupor from what I can understand, from what I can see. And after the last three years, it's like we're in hypersonic change, but they still don't see it. It's yeah. As if they still teach what they teach, but nobody talks that's about right. this stuff. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is that because of their purposely keeping their eyes closed, or is it it's not being revealed to them in some way. So why, the question is, uh, why are not more Christians and churches talking about this, waking up to this? It still seems like the church is in a stupor. Well, again, I would refer you back to the, the section that we just talked about, uh, you know, the last several weeks, and that is how the stage is being set ecclesiastically. This is all part of, you know, God's plan, right? Uh, this, the end times apostasy, that the closer we get to the end of the church age, the more churches are going to fall away and apostatize. That's what apostasy means, a falling away spiritually, a departure from the faith. So, um, you know, I, I think in regards to the fact that there seems to be a hypersonic awakening for some, I think that in and of itself is a sign of the times because the closer these Luciferians get to rolling out their plan, the more brazen they are about it, the more they think it's, it's already a fait accompli, we might as well just go ahead and do it. So they're doing more things, and it's causing those who have an appetite to look into it, that are willing to look behind the curtain. Because I, I talk to people all the time that say, I don't want to look behind the curtain. Just, I just I can't handle it. And I understand that. I understand that, you know, emotionally, I, I kind of get that. But for me, and I think for all believers, you know, uh, Second Thessalonians, no, First Thessalonians 5, 6 says, 
You know, we are not of the night nor of the darkness. We are of the light. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us awake, right? So I think we have a biblical mandate to look behind it. But I think what has happened is, especially since 2020, with the pre-planned pandemic that was 22 years in the making and rolled out on cue, along with the election, uh, I think those two things were so brazen and unmistakably deceptive that people that might not be Christians might not understand the spiritual aspect of this conspiracy that we're talk, beginning to talk about tonight, nevertheless woke up. So they, they're waking up to a, you know, a, a shadow government or the deep state or the global elite or whatever, that there's somebody else pulling the strings. But they haven't connected the dots theologically and biblically and spiritually and frankly, that, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the books is that, uh, you know, I've been studying this stuff for 16 years now. It's not something that I think is a key, uh, you know, motif of my whole ministry. And I saw that uh, the time was right to begin to say these things. I wrote a book about this in 2012, a small book, The Great Last Day's Deception, that was not well received in a lot of circles. I was disinvited from conferences or confronted after you know, conferences. Uh, this I remember one occasion back in 2015 when I was really lambasted at our resource table by a guy. I don't even remember what city it was in, but I can picture the auditorium, the venue. It was a, like a, a community center or something. And, uh, you know, people just weren't ready for it. But now people understand they can't trust the media. They can't trust the, fi- the fake right-left paradigm. They can't trust Fox News. You know, they can't. There's something they're being lied to. And once you realize you've been lied to, then it instinctively makes you wonder, what else have I been lied to about? That's exactly our awakening. When I first realized I'd been lied to in a major way about a major point of American history, I went down the rabbit hole. And, you know, did it in a, you know, academic research type way. You know, advanced degrees, I know how to research, and I'm not just going to watch a YouTube video and jump on the bandwagon. I went and visited places, did interviews, talked to people, you know, and, and, and so now I think, you know, you're seeing the, a, a widening of the gap between those who are starting to get it from a spiritual perspective and those right behind them that are getting that there's something not right but haven't understood it from a biblical worldview versus those over here that are blind and may never wake up and they're just buying it hook, line, and sinker. And then you've got the muddy middle, and that's who I want to reach, honestly. So, anybody else? Yes. Okay. No, no, go ahead. I think you, it was close. It was a photo finish. <laughs> it was a photo finish, but you beat her. Yeah, you have a long one or a short one? Uh, well, the question's short, but the answer might be kind of long. Go ahead. What are you trying to say? I'm long winded? <laughs> oh, no. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. With respect to the Neff wave, you might get into this in, in later, later presentations, but uh, again, I this comes from Andy Woods. Yeah. And uh, what Dr. Woods says is that one of the ways Satan is trying to defeat God or prove God to be a liar is by creating this hybrid race that is no longer pure human DNA. Yeah. And, and because they were the mighty men of old, the mighty men of renown, those offspring of the original angels that had the procreated the real humans, that... Uh, that they would eventually overtake and kill all the humans and have just the hybrid DNA. Excellent, yeah. Completely different 
of organisms, a different race of organisms, or yeah. uh, people. It wasn't people, it would be whatever they you call, want to call that group. The hybrids, yeah. And the purpose for the flood was to destroy all that DNA. Yeah. To defeat Satan, because what Satan was trying to do again was to prove God a liar and say that what God had planned with the with the covenant between Abram and himself, you're going to be Absolutely. the father of a great nation. Yeah. Can't do that because it started with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve as humans, pure and simple. Yeah. And I've created a race that you did not destroy, so you are now a liar. Yeah. God, you are now a liar. No, I think... I'm, I'm on equal yeah, that's excellent. And I am going to get into that as we go forward, but uh, I think that's an excellent point uh, to be made is that, you know, the point of Satan, of this demonic intrusion, of this intrusion to create this tainted DNA and this hybrid race was to try to stop, and I alluded to it a little bit tonight already, uh, to stop the godly line, you know, of the seed. It goes all the way back, not just to Genesis 12, but even before that to right. Genesis 3.15. Uh, and and, you know, Satan's been doing that in other ways, too. He tried to kill all the infants in Herod's day when Jesus was born, and he's trying to do that. So, um, you know, I think part of that is, you know, the whole transhumanist agenda. Remember, the one frontier that Satan will never be able to conquer is creating life. He cannot create life ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing. So he's trying his best to target God, the highest pinnacle of God's creation, the image of God and man, humanity, and corrupt them, and, and marginalize them, and say gender doesn't matter, your life doesn't matter, you are disposable, expendable, we can kill you in the womb, we can kill you if you, you know, are hurting, you can, we can kill you if you're depressed, like I talked about in my uh, series, or my message called Bloodlust, uh, the Luciferian depopulation agenda in Canada, you know, they've just broadened their law to where if you're just having a bad day, you can get your doctor to kill you. Uh, so they, they're trying everything they can to do a full assault on the image of God and man, on mankind, gender, surrender, all of that, the whole transhumanist agenda. So you really got them coming at this attack on humanity, which is a, indirectly an attack on God, from two directions. You've got the bio-digital, transhumanist, AI, that kind of stuff, creating God in the laboratory, like you've all know Harari says. But you've also got in the spiritual realm, and, and I talk about all that, by the way, in the books, chapters 2 and 3 of volume 2, it's all about transhumanism and what they're trying to do to create God in the image of man. That's what they want to do. Remember, that's what Satan told Eve, you will be like God. But then there's a whole, another side of that, which is the spiritual side, which is where the Nephilim come in. Now, you know, I up to recently have been hesitant to let, you know, let myself accept that these angels uh, might do this again for the same reason that Andy feels that way. That's what we were both taught. We've been to the same school together. And, uh, and, and you know, I just think it's a logical conclusion. The Bible is silent on whether it's happening now, uh, which, you know, means the burden of proof is on those who think it might be, you know. Um, but there are a lot of things that the Bible is silent on. Uh, and so, you know, either way, either you've got a... Because uh, you got to deal with Genesis 6-4. I mean, that's, that's clear. Uh, and, and to be fair, you know, people that can't allow their minds to go there, they can come up with different, you know, attempts to overcome Genesis 6-4, which says that there were, they were also on the earth afterwards, right? But, you know, either they, these hybrids 
they can procreate with each other, okay? Angels can't procreate with angels, but angels can procreate with human beings, as we've seen in Genesis 6, and these hybrids, the offspring of that incursion, can procreate with each other. So you've got, you know, let's see, 2,400, roughly 4,400 years of them having children, and that's, that's what I've always taught. That's why there's hybrids out there today. Now, their gene pool is even further corrupted and weird. It's, it's the bloodlines of the Illuminati. It's what I talked about. I don't remember what sermon it was, but not too long ago about how, you know, ancient lines of royalty going back centuries, even millennia, even in the B.C. times, they intermarry. They marry their brothers and sisters. They have to marry within. It's this bloodline concept. So either that's happening or... Again, some people suggest that there's been future intrusions. Andy, Stan, uh, Andy uh, Woods doesn't believe that, but uh, so I want to be clear on that. But I'm, I'm open to the idea, and I, I don't think we can be definitive one way or the other. His argument is simply an argument of speculation, that why would a fallen angel do that again? Well, we could make the same argument about why they got kicked into the abyss. Why would a demon in, indwell a, a, an unbeliever because previous demons that got thrown into the abyss where they're going to be kept until the tribulation so i just i'm not sure i would be as emphatic about it uh, as some are but uh yeah there's no question that i believe and, and something i've been researching recently and it's probably going to be in in the next book which hopefully will be out in october is satan uh needs to increase the size of his army you know, or thinks he does, if he's going to be ready for this final battle in, you know, the Valley of Megiddo, right? So he can only really lose soldiers because every time a believe, an unbeliever gets saved, they're permanently part of God's family, right? Um, so his group went down, so to speak. By the end of the tribulation, he's going to have all these unbelievers who took the mark of the beast, clearly aligned themselves with the satanic side of this battle, but, and he's got uh, the fallen angels. Now think about the fallen angels for a second. Angels cannot create more angels. So there's the same number of angels today as there were when they were created. One third of them, we know, fell and became fallen angels. Of that one third, so right off the bat, just stop there for a second, Satan's at a two to one disadvantage in the spiritual realm, right? But one third of those fallen angels, the ones who did this unholy incursion that Jude and Peter and Genesis talk about, they got put in Tartarus permanently. They're out of commission. They're in the penalty box, not for three minutes, but permanently, right? So now he's got even less. So how is he going to increase his army? Well, that's where the Nephilim come in, in my view. So either he is engaging in more incursions, which is, I mean, it's pretty compelling not the biblical evidence because we don't see any prophetic teaching that that exactly is going to happen unless you take the days of Noah reference that Jesus makes to to that I don't take it that way but apart from that you don't see any direct references to this happening again um, so but you sure see a lot of you know uh, anecdotal or experiential evidence of it uh, Gary Bates has done a and I'm not a big Gary Bates fan for a lot of reasons. Number one, he promoted the vaccine, but also, uh, you know, just his some of the stuff that he's done in terms of the gospel. But he's certainly spot on on his understanding of, you know, young earth creationism and literal 24-hour day creationism. But his documentary called Alien Intrusion, which I cite in the book and in our video series, we actually played clips from it. You know, he, he does tremendous research showing all of these people who think they've been 
abducted by aliens. And I differ with him on his final conclusion, although we both think it's demonic and spiritual. It's not little green men. It's not aliens or Martians. Um, but, you know, he thinks it's all delusional and demonic oppression. I think it's literal. I think these demons literally abducted these people, just like they did in Genesis 6, and they're doing this weird stuff. It's always about uh, reproductive organs. If you go and you look at the, you know, the, you know, uh, eyewitness accounts of this stuff and victim accounts, and you look at things like the uh, cattle uh, mutilations and things like that, it's always related to the reproductive organs. Why, why is that, right? And this is massive all across the globe. This isn't just a couple of high school kids that decided to start a rumor. I mean, this is documented by people over centuries, but it's really seen an uptick since 1947. And my belief is that Satan is doing everything he can to increase the size of his army. Uh, so more than one way to do that, but I think that's his desperate last-ditch attempt. Okay, here we go. Your question. Oh, thank you. Okay. So going back to, uh, <laughs> Sorry, you thought I forgot about you. I thought I forgot about you, too. Um, so going back to, um, you'd mentioned that there have been, um, people have found uh, bones of yeah. giants. Yeah. So we all grew up learning all about like dinosaur fossils and, you know, that's very well, whether or not they're real documented. And, but I personally have never heard of, have they tried to keep the discovery of these uh, giant bones quiet? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so no. the question is, are they trying to keep the discovery the absolutely the elongated skulls the long the large giants but if you go to la marzuli's website i can't remember what it is and again when i mention people like this don't email me with some quote of them that you know you know i disagree with like on the gospel or whatever i'm not in carte blanche endorsing everything these people ever say i'm just giving you evidence to, to research right I happen to think L.A. Marzulli is a very genuine, great-hearted guy. It doesn't mean I agree with him on everything. But he's the tip of the spear on all of this research, as well as you know, cattle mutilations, crop circles, all kinds of other stuff that is demonic in origin. But, yeah, there's a whole conspiracy out there, and there have been documentaries about it, about the Smithsonian Institute, that underneath uh, you know, some of the Smithsonian buildings, they're, they're keeping these skulls under lock and key and these bones. And they're not letting people know because it would completely alter the official Darwinian narrative if they, right. you know, if they okay. did that. So, okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, any other questions? Yes. If we're going to end times, it's going to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. And many times when I read about Noah, I don't know how he survived through that time frame unless it was supernatural for God, you know, Shekinah glory or something that his family Yeah, so the question is, it's hard to imagine how Noah survived during his day, apart from supernatural, you know, intervention and guidance and help, and what advice might we uh, take today to navigate these similar times that are wor that are going to be worse, and they're getting worse now, and they're going to be, they're going to reach a pinnacle of evil during the tribulation period. We won't be here then, but we don't know how much of it we'll see before the Lord chooses to meet us in the air. Um, so I actually did have some slides that we'll get to next week on some practical suggestions. Uh, in the books, I end both of my books with a so what chapter and you know, give lots of you know, things to think about. Um, 
But I think, you know, Noah was righteous and he believed God. You know, he had faith. He understood, like we talked about Sunday here at Plum Creek. You know, he, he heard what God said and he believed it. And so I think what we need to do is trust in God's word, trust that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Read these passages like we started with tonight that talk about how God is laughing at them, that reminds Satan of his, uh, you know, future. Let him know he's powerless. Let him know he's not in charge. Um, you know, we, we are, you know, as, as Jesus told the disciples, we have, you know, power over these evil spirits. And so, but I think it's, it's the same answer that I would give to any struggle of the Christian life today, no matter how severe, uh, and that is trusting God. We walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. You know, the more we trust God, the more we're going to see things from a heavenly perspective, and we will not be so uh, affected by all that's falling apart around us. And someone, yes? So we do see an intersection between these uh, uh, fallen angels and Nephilim and UFOs? I do, yes, yeah, Absolutely. The question is, do we see an intersection between the fallen angels and demons and the UFOs? No question. Yeah. So the, you know, the evidence for existence of UFOs is undeniable. And, you know, Tucker Carlson, is, and I only mention that because, you know, I can say something, as many people did for 70 years, and they're like, oh, you're a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. And Tucker Carlson on Fox News says it, and everybody goes, oh, well, you know, UFOs really exist. Let me let me talk to Commander David Fravor. Let me talk to this. So no, there's. I mean, you've got top level generals. You've got declassified documents. You've got entire military programs and projects that have been tracking this stuff. You've got you know video evidence. You've got infrared evidence. You've got no no question that it exists. But it's the question is how do you interpret it? And I believe as have as many have talked about that Satan is is not only not only are we seeing these manifestations of this evil spirit activity on the uptick in the last 70 years, and especially in the last four, five, six years since 2017, um, you know, because Satan's sending out reconnaissance missions and he's getting ready, I think there's another, you know, layer of complexity there that I think Satan knows about the rapture. He knows that at some point God's going to call millions of Christians to meet him in the air. And in order for the Antichrist, his man of the hour, to, to rise to prominence, he's going to have to have a plausible explanation for that. So I think he's setting the stage for there to be some type of alien, you know, takeover. Uh, and who was it? Was it uh, Musk that recently talked about how there's a spaceship just out there in the Netherlands somewhere uh, in the atmosphere? On his planet there is. On his planet, yeah. So, I mean, there are all kinds of people out there creating this narrative and I think not only is it wrong because they're seeing it in the realm of aliens and you know Martians and the like but I think it's also whether they realize it or not creating a false narrative that Satan can use to explain the rapture so very interesting okay well thank you guys for the extra 10 minutes tonight we will uh, convene again next week and pick up with some manifestations of uh, these evil spirits. Thank you, guys.